Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today I'm very excited because we get to chat with Mike Norton. He is a Harvard professor. He's wicked smart. Uh, that's about as all the Boston accent stuff I can do. Uh, but he uh, co-wrote a book called Happy Money. And we looks at the science of spending and how to maximize happiness. It's one of the areas that we talk about today. Uh, how can we use money to make ourselves happy? Does it include charitable giving? What does it relate in terms of buying time? How do we use time? How can we maximize it? And then we also touch on a new area of research and focus of Mike's upcoming book on rituals. You'll also find out how I brush my teeth in the morning. So there's a bit of a teaser for you to make sure you listen. Anyways, uh, thank you as always for listening. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've spent a lot of your research focused on how to buy happiness, and that's one of the things that we'll talk about today. But I'm interested to know, what's one of the things that you've bought that has made you most happy? I think actually the one of the things that we try to do is also encourage people to not buy things that make them <laughs> unhappy, which is sometimes an even bigger and costlier mistake. So, for example... Uh, I was thinking about moving, uh, and then I decided not to buy a house because right now I walk to work. And so even though the house was, you know, a nice house and it was better or whatever, not buying it actually has made me happier because commuting is so bad that no, no amazingness <laughs> of a house would ever offset the fact that I'd be sitting in a car for 30 minutes twice a day screaming at other people. <laughs> that's a, that's a good answer. Um, what about something that maybe you actually did purchase and then had regret or it made you sad? I'm trying to think of things that I've, um, the thing that came to mind is buying clothes that are optimistically, um, <laughs> one, one size too, too small because things all lose weight and then they sit in my closet as a reminder of my failure. Um, but those are too painful to discuss even, I think. Yeah, that's that's a different podcast that we have. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I have I have this one uh, tank top that I've owned for probably close to a decade now, and uh, I keep it because like I just can't wait till I can wear this tank top. But uh, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Yeah. I have suits from when I was in college that look like they're for like a, a child, like an eight year old. <laughs> I don't I don't really <laughs> I ever wore them, but yeah, I uh, I put on my wedding suit because it was a nice suit, and the 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 legs were like flood pants, how wide they were. It's like, wow, this was like the style. It wasn't that long ago. It was crazy. Anyways, yeah, keeping old clothes, not not great. Um, so that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about, you know, charitable giving and spending money. And you wrote a book called Happy Money. Uh, you wrote it with Elizabeth Dunn a few years back. What inspired you to kind of do that research and write that book on happy money? So um, Liz Dunn, who's my um, colleague at UBC, actually had been studying happiness uh, for a little while, and she was mainly studying the way that people mispredict what will make them happy hmm. and unhappy. So we, we think that 
getting that job will make us happy every single day of our lives. And of course, I mean, we might like the job, but you know, our lives don't necessarily change that much. So she was really interested in when we're right and when we're wrong. And then um, she got interested in in designing intervention. So it's one thing to say, uh, hey, people are really bad at this, which is which is fine and it's amusing. But at some <laughs> point you want to say, hey, why don't you try something else instead? Right. And so we brainstormed around the idea really of what are things that people can change, um, not even big, huge life changes, but literally like what could you change today where you'd be a little bit happier than if you did something else? And we hit on money, not because we think, you know, money is the key to happiness. It's not. There's a lot of things that are important for happiness. But we we exchange it for stuff all the time, every day. And so it was an opportunity to say, hey, like, out of the 20 things you're going to buy today, do one of them differently. And let's see if you do that one differently, if we can make you happier. Right. So in that book, you kind of outlined five different kind of areas or principles um, can you share maybe like one or two what, of what those areas or principles are and kind of some of the research related to it? Sure. So the the first principle that we um, identified was um, something that we call buying experiences. So uh, Tom Gilovich, who's a psychologist at Cornell University, did the seminal research on buying experiences. Very simple, and by, by that I mean a compliment research where – he just tells people, go buy a material possession or go buy an experience and ask them afterward, how are you feeling? <laughs> it turns out that when people buy stuff, you know, anything really, but small things and large things, it doesn't, it actually doesn't tend to make people unhappy. We sometimes have that theory that like if you buy stuff, you'll be miserable. Mm. It doesn't usually look like that's what happens. It just looks like buying stuff doesn't do anything for you. It just leaves you where you were. And he shows that when you buy experiences, it does something for you. You actually feel happier after you buy experiences. And there's lots of reasons why, but a big one is, um, like, if you buy a TV, you might think you're going to have family night and watch shows with friends and things like that. But in fact, you just sit by yourself and stare at a wall. So (laughs) even if the TV is amazing, it's not going to make, and even if the shows are great, it's not going to make you really that happy, right? Because you're sitting in a room by yourself. Whereas experiences are often, not always, but often social. So in a way, they're a commitment to be with other Mm. people. And even though other people are annoying sometimes, being with other people makes us happy, more happier than being by ourselves. And that's partly why you should go buy a dinner out rather than something stupid that you're going to consume by yourself. Right. And and, uh, is that underlying principle kind of uh, where we think, oh, this is how amazing this will be with our family. Do we use that a lot when we buy things? Like we we picture the most perfect scenario of those jeans or that tank top or that TV. And then the reality is it doesn't really happen. And so then it's a bit of a letdown. You're absolutely right. One of the best examples of this is there's research on. So this is painful for many, many people, but how expensive your car is has no relationship at all to how much you're, <laughs> uh, how happy you are in your life. Just nothing. It's not mm-hmm. bad to have a great car. It just doesn't do anything. Yeah. And part of the reason is that when you buy, let's say you buy whatever your fancy car of choice, Lamborghini or whatever, you're imagining driving it like on open roads on a right. beautiful day and the wind blowing through your hair, you know, whatever. And in fact, you know, if you buy that car, it snows half the year and you can't drive it or you're stuck in traffic and you're honking at people. So maybe if you did drive it only on open roads in wine country all the time, it would make you happier. (laughs) 
but that's yeah. not what life is, right? Life is commuting to work and things like that. So yeah, this best case scenario that comes to mind is often not what actually happens in our lives. So one of the other things that that was in the book or, or kind of one of the tips was kind of like pay now, consume or experience later, which seems counterintuitive, but it's really the anticipation of a reward that really gets us fired up. Is there an element of that, say in that car scenario where uh, you get much more pre-anticipation reward thinking of this sexy car as opposed to like a Prius, uh, even though if once you get it, it doesn't pay off? Is there still some form of happiness or benefit in the higher anticipation? There's a little bit for stuff. So it, it, it's <laughs> true that when we're waiting for something we bought, you know, to arrive, we feel that that's exactly the word people say anticipation. But when you're waiting for stuff, people also report feeling really frustrated. Like, mm. where's my thing? I bought my thing. I want my thing. Like if Amazon doesn't deliver it to you in eight minutes, now you're furious, you know, <laughs> it didn't get you right. your thing in time. But when you're waiting for an experience to arrive, there, there's much less frustration and much more anticipation. So right. if you're waiting for a vacation, I mean, yeah, I'd love for it to happen right now. But even if it's six months away, I kind of think about it every day. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, I get to go on vacation. And so, so that whole six months, every day, I feel a little bit excited about that experience coming up. Yep. And that counts, right? I mean, you wouldn't think buying a vacation also is buying six months of anticipation. <laughs> but yeah. it is. And so if you're going to buy a car or a vacation or whatever, a TV or a vacation, factor in the six months before and factor in that happiness when you make the decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. My uh, my wife and I went on a, a trip to Mexico with our, some of our college friends, and we had this debate because we wanted to surprise them. And we were like, you know, is the upside of this epic surprise where he doesn't know that we're there worth the trade-off of the buildup, basically, of, you know, texting back and forth and the anticipation. And so this yeah. year we went with the surprise, and it was pretty great. But definitely that lead-up to a, to a vacation in particular is, is, yeah, it's part of the benefit. We did a consulting project a few years ago with an online travel company, and, and one of the things that they told us was uh, people will like book book a hotel and book a trip on the site, uh, and then they were um, noticing this curious pattern where people were coming back to the website a lot, and they were worried that people were you know like dissatisfied, you know like looking at other properties or something, hmm. like they had done something else, and they totally weren't. They were looking at the property they already booked. And just scrolling through the pictures again. <laughs> just, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah. God, there's speech I'm going to be on. And it really shows you how powerful it is to be looking wow. forward to something. Interesting. Um, one thing that, that you mentioned there with the, the study and measuring happiness, um, is that the, kind of the, the research method? You kind of ask someone how they're feeling and then you have them do something and then you ask them how they're feeling? Because like measuring happiness has to be extremely difficult. Yeah, happiness is a really – unusual thing to measure. So, um, like if I ask you, I'm going to make up a scale that doesn't exist on a scale from one to 73, where one is I'm as unhappy as as I've ever been. And 73 is I'm as happy as I've ever been. Where would you put yourself on the 73 point scale? (laughs) Me right now, 55, 55. So how did you come up with 55? No idea. Just a feeling. It just came to you, right? Like, yeah, I'm about a 55 out of 73, even though we don't know what 73 (laughs) is. We don't know what one is, right? So uh, Hmm. most people immediately, a number comes to mind, like, oh, I'm about a 62, something Hmm. like that. 
in a way that sort of makes it trivial, like, well, I mean, what can it possibly mean, you know, if you just come up with a number? But what's yeah. interesting is, if I ask you, like, every month or every year, you're probably still going to be around a 55. Hmm. And if bad things happen to you, like you get divorced or something like that, you're probably going to be lower than a 55. And if good things happen to you, you're probably going to be higher than a 55. Hmm. Now, I have no idea what 55 means at all. And I don't know if I said 55 too, I have no idea if you and I mean right. the same thing at all. Right. But I can use your 55 to say, how's Brady doing in his life? And we use that same kind of logic. It's a little, it's unusual, absolutely. But we use that same logic to say, hey, these things seem to make people go up from 55. And these things seem to make people go right. down from 55. So when we say right. stuff doesn't make you happy, what we mean is, you said 55 and then you buy a bunch of stuff and we ask you again and you say 55. So nothing happened. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I always, I always find that, uh, that part fascinating. So when it comes to kind of, you know, the, the happy money or synopsis, what's, what's like one thing that people listening can do to kind of maximize their happiness? I think a big, so one of the principles that we um, had only done a little work on, but since then we've done more work and so have, um, other people as well is the issue of using your money to buy yourself better time. Mm. And I think this is, um, we had meant it sort of as, you know, um, the example we always use was to buy a Roomba, you know, so that you don't have to vacuum the (laughs) robot vacuum cleaner does it for you. So you're you're literally buying yourself out of that. Um, and those things are great. Actually, those are good for happiness, especially compared to buying yourself something stupid. But what we really have realized is that um, everything you buy affects your time. Hmm. And we just don't think of it that much. So even in the, the I, earlier I was joking about buying a house and commuting, when you buy a house, you, you realize that you have to, you know, and it's further from work, you realize right. you have to commute, but you don't realize it enough. So you're thinking, hmm. yeah, you know, it's 30 minutes each way, no big deal. But you're not thinking it's 30 minutes each way, five days a week, for the rest of your life, you know what <laughs> right. I mean? And when you think of it that way, it can start to feel different. Because you're buying a commute. You don't feel like you're buying a commute, but that's exactly what you're buying. And commute, yeah. just as an example, like commutes are really, really negative for, for people. Like it's a real drag on your well-being. Hmm. And it's, it's an hour total each day that you're not spending with your family or doing something you right. like, right? One hour every day the week for the rest of your life. Yeah. Do you want to buy that just to live in a house that has whatever outdoor fire pit or whatever that the new house has? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, well, that was one of the areas I wanted to, to touch on and that you you touched on already with time. But one of the interesting things that um, you've done some research on is how maybe companies can use time as like a compensation or some kind of benefit to employees. Can you unpack that just a little bit? Because that's interesting. Yeah, so the, the typical thing with, with most companies is um, basically the theory is that you reward people with money, right? I mean, that's what a salary is. It says, mm-hmm. if you do some work for me and it's not terrible, I'll give you a salary. And then I'll keep giving it to you as long as you keep working. And then you have things like bonuses or, you know, in sales, you have targets and incentives and bonus structures and things like that. But all of that really is money for yourself that you probably use to buy stuff. Right. So in our world, it's sort of like a not very happy world <laughs> is how we would sort of think about it. 
And so the question is, what can you uh, incentivize employees with that actually might be more meaningful and they might um, use in ways that make them happier? And one big one, which we'll, which we'll talk about, is, is charitable initiatives for sure. But another one is with time. And so an example that I really love is um, uh, if you thought about giving an employee so they do something great, whatever it might be, and you say, um, you know, um, every every month this year, you get one day where you can show up to work an hour late and there's no questions asked. And not just you can, but you have to. So once a month, you must come into work at 10 instead of 9. Now, that's a very tiny amount of time. doesn't really seem to matter that much. When you offer that to um, especially dual-income couples with small children, Hmm. A freebie of, you know, that one disaster morning, <laughs> right. that's usually more than one, but let's say <laughs> one disaster morning per month, having that, you know, get out of work card just hmm. for an hour, you don't need the whole day. You know what I mean? It's, it's just that right, one morning right. that everything goes wrong is huge for your well-being. And your sense that your company cares at all about your life is huge because they're helping you solve a really big problem that you have. Right. I mean, would you like to get, you know, a hundred dollar bonus? Yeah, of course we all would. Would it really change much about your work life or your home life or your happiness? Probably not. It probably just goes in with the other money and you're, you know, using it for whatever you'd use it for. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And if you're having one of those a month, you're doing you're doing very well. Um, <laughs> one of those a day, one bad morning a day, <laughs> yeah. is the average with children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, getting to charitable giving, um, that's where we kind of met. We were on a panel talking about psychology of giving, and you've done you know all kinds of research, and obviously charitable giving efforts tied to money and happiness. Uh, there's strong linkages, and you just mentioned it. What are some of the like? really neat stuff that you found when it comes to charitable giving in particular related to things like happiness? One of the biggest things is just that um, on average for most people, most of the time, again, because spending money on yourself doesn't do anything for you, that on average for most people, most of the time, spending it on somebody else instead will make you happier. Now, you mm -hmm. couldn't do that with 100% of your income. Obviously, you need to, you know, have a roof and things like that. But most people are spending a very small amount of their income on other people. It could be friends, it could be family. A lot of it is charitable giving, of course. Really, really tiny percent of their income. And the studies that we do are kind of saying, um, just you know, allocate $5 differently today. So one surprising thing is it's not like you have to be a billionaire and give you know half a billion dollars to charity to, to be happier little tiny daily um, instances of charitable giving, which can be buying somebody lunch or, you know, um, giving money to a homeless person or donating to charity online. Even those little tiny ones, just shifting your spending a tiny bit, we can show over the course of that day that you're going to have a happier day. And we can show that people who give more on average are happier people. Hmm. Yeah, so one of the, the common terms, you know, in these types of studies is like pro-social spending and that's not just charitable giving right that includes like i bought coffee for someone it's is that like anything that i use money that's not on me is that considered pro-social yeah i mean as of, with all things in academia there are uh, you know nine trillion sides to the debate and i would <laughs> you would want to kill yourself if i went into it but the way that we typically think about it is totally it's like spending on yourself versus pro-social means just using it for anybody else gotcha 
Well, and the the billionaire comment is is a really useful one too because one of the uh, you know, there's book Science of Giving, which is a summary of a bunch of these research studies. And one of them basically tried to chart that happiness as people increased the amount that they gave. So, you know, they gave $5 and they'd ask that question, you know, are you 55 or 60? And they found that kind of the more money that people gave, it wasn't, you know, t- tied directly to their happiness. It's not like if I give 10 bucks, I'm, you know, 10 points happy. And if I give $1,000, I'm 1,000 points happy. Like it's a diminishing return. And so actually, you know, doing smaller bits of giving more frequently is kind of a way to be happy. Is that, does that line up with some of the research that you found? Like more frequent, smaller things is actually more beneficial to your happiness than one big thing? Almost. Almost all things uh, in for humans work that way. Actually, so mm. if you think about, um, uh, I don't know why I always use this. I don't even like chocolate cake, but a lot of people do. If you think about chocolate cake, if you get an entire chocolate cake and you eat it, the entire thing in one sitting, it's it's like really <laughs> good. You know what I mean? Like I mean, the first bite's amazing, right? right? And then right. so is the fifth bite or whatever. By like the fiftieth bite. You know, it's still better than stopping, right? So you're not, you're not going to stop eating the cake, but it's definitely not as good as the first bite. And literally, if you just stop and take a break, like even five minutes, and come back to it, mm. that uh, can be called habituation or adaptation. That kind of getting used to and tired of things gets disrupted, and then you come back to the cake and it tastes as good as it did at the beginning. Mm. Same thing happens with so many things in life, including right. giving where taking a little break when you're getting a little sick of it and coming back, now you're sort of closer to the beginning of how happy you were at time one. Interesting. Um, that's one of the things that I really like about, you know, your research obviously taps on an area that I'm interested in, but so much of it really starts tapping into just like how are humans just wired? Like what do we do? Uh, and obviously money and giving is a big portion of it, but there's kind of these overarching patterns that, that humans do. And I love how you always draw those comparisons. Um, so one of the, the, the books that you're working on now, I believe, is on rituals. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So why 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 rituals and kind of like what is rituals? Give us a little little teaser for that. So uh, let me ask you a couple of quick questions. So uh, in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. when you do your morning routine, do you brush your teeth first and then shower, or do you shower and then brush your teeth? Uh, I brush my teeth in the shower. You brush your teeth in the shower. So if I ask you to do it differently. Um, like tomorrow, like if I said, um, why don't you take a shower first and then after that, get out and brush your teeth. Uh Does it bother you or does it not bother you if you simulate it? That wouldn't bother me. So here's what's so interesting is if you ask people their morning routine, typically there's actually like 45% of people brush their teeth first and then shower, 45% shower and then brush their teeth. And then there's the people like you who do them simultaneously. (laughs) So we have these things like some of us do it one way, some of us do it the other way. Then, if you ask people, would it bother you, half of people say, I don't care, like you did, mm-hmm. and half of people say, I don't like that. Like, they'll, they'll look, <laughs> if you're a whatever, shower first, to, you know, brush your teeth after, uh-huh. they'll look at people raising their hands to the other thing, like, what is wrong with you? Like, how <laughs> you could psychos. you possibly, <laughs> totally, and they're like, how could you be in the shower without brushing your teeth? Your mouth is so gross. You know what I mean? It's like these... And that, in a sense, is closer to a ritual, right? Like, Hmm. you didn't think that showering and then brushing mattered to you. But then if I ask you, and for some people it doesn't, you're like, I don't care. And then you could think of that as a habit. 
like, you know, I do, I do this stuff in the morning. I don't care the order. I'm just getting stuff done. More mm. like a hat. The ritual end is when you start to care. Suddenly the order that things happen or the timing of mm. things or whether they're repeated or not, all of those features start to make things more like a ritual for you. So it's less mm. of the, uh, you know, religious services are rituals kind of thing. Although right, we right. that too. And it's more like just the spending money, as we talked about, it's more like the little things we do in our daily life. Hmm. That's the stuff that I was so interested in. Why do we do these things? Why are we so often unaware of them? And also right. then, like, do they actually help us or are we just wasting our time? Interesting. Is there any um, kind of overlap with, say, like charitable giving or spending money in the rituals, do you think? So we've tried to um, use rituals to help people um, exert uh, more self-control. So, for example... Um, rituals can help you um, behave more in line with your goals, like eating healthy and exercising. And we tried to use rituals to help people to get in the habit of giving. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can like inculcate good habits in you, meaning like healthy habits. And mm-hmm. we wondered if we could do the same thing, but the habits would be like giving habits. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. <laughs> we were super sad, actually. Now, maybe we just that, you know, did the research wrong and maybe there's a better way to do it. There, there usually is, but we were sad that we couldn't kind of get people into the, using a ritual to get you into the habitual right. giving so that you then, you and I have talked a lot about the recurring giving is the problem. Like how do we turn people into yeah. not just I give and then I don't care anymore, but I give and I keep caring. Right. Right. Interesting. Well, hopefully you can uh, crack that nut at some point. Um, well, <laughs> Thanks so much for, for taking some time. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, and maybe upcoming work? I'm like a Luddite, so I have no um, social media, but um, I, uh, <laughs> Harvard makes websites for us. So if you, if you ever Google <laughs> Michael Norton Harvard, uh, my ridiculous faculty picture will come up and you can read the um, excruciating academic papers. Awesome. Uh, well, that's going to be kind of hard to, to put out in the show notes, but I'll, I'll dig up a link on you and I'll, uh, I'll send that out in the show notes. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Brady. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It- Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>